Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for being present here with us. We want to thank you that you have given us an example of servanthood. God, help us to do the same. God, this morning as I speak, um, allow the Spirit to speak through me. Uh, God, I ask that ears would be open to hear what you have to say and that anything that isn't of you would just simply be forgotten. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of the highlights of my year is going, uh, is going to Gem Lake, joining with the men of our church and, and heading out uh, for our annual, I guess it's sort of like our men's retreat, although it wouldn't really consider it a retreat because we do a lot of work. Um, or maybe working is a retreat. I don't know. It's good either way. Uh, it's a great combination of fellowship, fun, and, and working together to bless Inner City Youth Alive and the ministry they run out of their camp on the lake. And um, if I don't sound excited enough about it yet, um, I, I could raise my voice. I don't know, but I want to I get all of you men excited about it again this year. We are planning, as far as I know, uh, the first weekend in June. So if you're the type of person that has to have something in their calendar like six months ahead of time, then I guess I'm a little late. But otherwise, uh, mark it down if you're, if you're interested. We'd love to see you there. Uh, but as has become the tradition, come Saturday evening, we always have a, a fresh fish fry for supper. Uh, so in order to have this, one of the tasks for the weekend is to do plenty of fishing. And uh, I, I'm not really an avid fisherman, so, so it usually ends up being the one weekend in a year that I do as much fishing as I can. And so that's exactly what I did two years ago. Every opportunity that I had, I was out on the boat with the fishing crew trying to get enough fish for the big fish fry. Uh, on one such occasion, uh, there was actually many adventurous things that happened, but this isn't that story. If you guys, if any of you know what I'm talking about there, my camera and the lake and whatever else not. Um, this is a different story. We were, we were out and we were having tremendous success, or, or at least I think we were, and I hope that this is the right time at Gem Lake. I, I was talking to uh, Dave. Dave thinks that this was maybe true, so... But, you know, I've heard, I've heard enough of, a, like, a very specific story of Ernie doing a perfect backflip off of a runaway boat uh, to feel as though that a little bit of embellishment when it comes to Gem Lake is, uh, is acceptable. So, uh, anyway, every cast was a master angler or, or something like that. And, and we were about to call it quits uh, and, uh, and head in because, you know, our stringer was just full of fish. Uh, but of course, we decided to throw out our lines once more, and wouldn't you know it, one of the guys hooked a great big jackfish, and it was probably, you know, like this big, you know, so, or however fishing stories usually go, and, and, and uh, so I'm not exactly sure exactly how this happened, but I know it did, so the details are a little fuzzy, so just forgive me for all the exaggeration. He reels this thing in, and, and it's jumping around all over the place. And of course, I wasn't any use at all because I, despite the fact that I enjoy catching the fish, I hate touching them. Um, and so thankfully, there were some more experienced and braver fishermen than I who subdued the slimy beast and got it on the stringer. Uh, and I don't quite remember how it happened or why it happened, or I think it might have had something to do with the stringer we were using. But once that big jackfish got on there, it threw a massive fit and somehow while attempting to attach the stringer back to the boat... Something happened that caused it to come loose, and suddenly we went from a big catch to no catch. And by no catch, I mean none, no fish at all. The stringer and fish and everything went down back into the lake. So after this happened, I, I, uh, I pondered the future of these fish. 
all lined together, probably all going with their instincts, you know, trying to get free, pulling each other in every different direction. And, and I think it's safe to assume that they didn't suddenly figure out how to swim together as a team. I, I think that's probably a pretty safe bet. I, I think in all likelihood, sad as it is, they struggled till exhaustion and eventually sank to the bottom of the lake to await their death. Because there's no way that a group of fish could be unified uh, and, and their inability to be unified would ultimately lead to their demise. So as you may know, this past week uh, was the 2019 week of prayer for Christian unity. Each year, the Canadian Council of Churches and other similar organizations around the world encourage a one-week united effort of prayer in January, calling on God to unite all of his followers. So, so it seemed appropriate then that today's topic would deal with the issue of church unity. It seems wherever there is a group of people, you will have different thoughts and opinions, and therefore, division. I mean, we know this, right? Look at our neighbors to the south right now. Read about our own, polit our own politics in our country. Um, watch any sporting event, entertainment, look in the newspaper, visit any open comment section online, and, and you will see that division is a part of human nature. And unfortunately, the church is no exception. Throughout history, the church has a horrible track record when it comes to being united. In fact, uh, differing biblical interpretations have even caused persecution and death. We should know this after all. If we go back to our forefathers, the Mennonites and other Anab Anabaptists that were literally drowned and burned to death for differing beliefs, differing opinions than the Roman Catholic and Protestant beliefs. And, and I'd say that's, I mean, I don't know, maybe you, maybe you disagree with me, but th that's about as far from unity as you can get when it comes to church. And, and you'd think that this kind of disunity wouldn't be the case for Christians, but it seems that man's sinful nature and the devil's schemes started to create divisions right from the beginning of the early church. And I don't think they've really stopped to this day. But, but why is unity so important anyway in the church? Isn't it simpler to just go our own separate ways when we come up against conflict and just start another church that plays the music we like or, you know, whatever it is, or, or just leave the church we are and try and find another one? What, what does it mean to be united anyway? Does it mean that we, are, that we all have to believe and worship the same way or, or agree on everything? Evidently, unity was very important to the Apostle Paul, after planning a number of churches, he, he very quickly saw the destructive forces of disunity start up in the early churches. And, and it's no wonder then that so much of the letters written by Paul to the churches stress the importance of unity. Paul knew that unity was key. Let's turn in our, turn in our Bibles and take a look at some of these things that Paul has to say about unity in the early church First, we're going to jump over to 1 Corinthians. If you, if you have your Bible, you can follow, follow along in there. I, the verses will be up on the screen, but it's sometimes nice to follow along as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And then to the church in Ephesus, which would be, what book of the Bible if I say Ephesus? Ephesians, I heard someone say it. Ephesians chapter 4. It's just a couple pages over. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then to the Romans, in Romans chapter 12. Let's again flip back a little ways here. I have these all nicely bookmarked, but they're all like right in the same spot in your Bible. So Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 5, it says, for, the, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many, many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul uses a powerful image there of a body being united. And then in Galatians, again, we're just looking at a bunch of these here. Flip on over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. 3, verse 26 to 28 says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And finally, the theme verse for this morning, uh, we're going to be looking, we're going to be sticking around in Philippians. To the church in Philippi, the passage uh, that we're going to focus on, uh, chapter 2, Paul says again, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Unity, 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 unity. You get the feeling that this is important or something. And I hope that we are united in understanding that unity is one of the highest calls for us as believers and of the church. But why is it so important? Well, if the numerous times that Paul mentioned unity to, uh, to, uh, to the churches that he planted isn't enough um, to convince you that it should be top priority for each of us as Christians and for us as the church, uh, let's, let's jump over to the ultimate authority in, in Jesus Christ. If you want to turn with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, and we're going to read here in John chapter 17. Starting in verse 20. And this is Jesus praying. This is, this is his last prayer in the garden. He's praying for all believers. He's praying for the future church. And he says this, 
In John chapter 17, verse 20, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. And he's saying, not for just the disciples, because just before that he was praying for the disciples. I, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me. Then even as you have, have loved them, even as you have loved me. There it is right there. It's actually, you know, it's a little unsettling when you hear what Jesus has to say about unity. In some ways, when I think about it, it makes me sad to see how horribly the church has failed. And perhaps it makes a lot of sense why we're failing to reach our society, to reach the world in a lot of ways. First of all, Jesus prays, and we're called to unity an example of, of him and God, right? Just as Jesus and the Father are one. That's, that's the example. But beyond that, did you, did you, did you hear what it said at the last, the last part of Jesus' prayer there, that little section. He says, Then the world will know. Then the world will know who he is. Then the world will see the gospel. Then the world will understand. The world needs to see unity in the body of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what it's all about. If we keep fighting... If we keep going our own separate ways, like the fish on the stringer, we're going to sink to the bottom, exhausted from all of our individual efforts, and we will fail. We will fail to be the example that God has called us to be. We will fail to be the light that we're supposed to be to the world. If we can't submit ourselves to Christ, be united with him and with each other, we will fail. If we can't work together as the body, we will be useless. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not saying that God will fail. We already know how it ends, but, but I don't know. I, I read these passages, and, and, I, and I can't help but feel like there's a, there's a level of accountability for the ways in which we are unable to be united as the church. I, I mean, why would anyone be interested in the message of the gospel if we Christians show the world that we can't even get along? So we know it's important. We know we've been called to unity. So, so what does that unity look like? And how do we even get there? As we already heard, Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. So what does this mean? What does that, what does that mean? Well, first of all, I don't think that God has called us all to have the exact same opinions and thoughts on every spiritual matter. It just doesn't seem to make sense with the way that we've been created. I, I mean, if complete cookie-cutter copies was, was God's idea, then I, I feel like we should be able to look around the room and, and you know, I, I would look around and I wouldn't see the vast variety that exists in his creation. We have all been created so incredibly unique. I, I don't think it's logical that we'd end up coming to the same conclusions on absolutely everything. Everyone has their own story, their own personality, their own gifting, their own call. They're many members of the body, right? And I think that's part of what makes the church so beautiful. 
It's crucial that each of us does the hard work of of digging deeply into what we believe and hold tightly to what God reveals to us through his word and by his spirit. However, at the same time, we need to learn to listen to others and continue to study God's truth further. So so if uniform thinking isn't the answer, then then what does does being like-minded look like? I think if we keep reading in verse uh, Philippians, back where we were in, in verse 2, he says this, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. I think having the same love is the key, one of the keys to unity. H- have you ever noticed your natural tend- tendency when, when you disagree with someone? Have you ever taken note? If you've ever been to an intense rivalry at a sporting match something like when the Jets were in the playoffs last year and they were playing against Smashville and you just want to yell at and mock the other team I I remember Nashville doing this whole thing where they brought a plane and smashed it before the game and I I remember a co-worker saying Winnipeg Humane Society should promote free spaying and neutering of cats in retaliation I thought it was funny right it's ridiculous though you know, when, when we get passionate about something, we feel like booing. And we feel like yelling at those who we don't agree with. That's our natural tendency. And all too often, that natural tendency comes along with us. We are tempted to have the same kind of feelings against people who we disagree with about theological issues, biblical or church issues, or when we see what other churches are doing and we, you know, we feel like booing. And when we come up against differences in the church, we, we must take that opportunity to show the rest of the world that we are very different in how we behave when we disagree. Paul calls us to be united and to have the same love, to have love even with the people that we don't agree with in the church. I'm, I'm really blessed to work together on our pastoral team, and, and we share an incredible amount of unity. But in, in our discussions, we don't always see things exactly the same way. As with any team, we disagree from time to times. But we've also worked together long enough, and we have the same love for Christ and for his work here at PV, that we are able to have varying opinions, yet still be united. I heard a pastor once say that if we are like-minded it means that we can have a love for one another that transcends needing to have the same opinion on everything. It's above and beyond that. When we don't agree with a Christian brother or sister, it's easy to be tempted to become upset with them, to start to get angry at who they are, and to start to look for ways we can tear them down. However, when we recognize this behavior in ourselves, we must remind ourselves of the same love that we share. We need to find the common ground, find the things that unite us. To paraphrase another verse, if we love God, we must love one another. To add to all this, there's a common thread that seems to run through many of Paul's calls to unity, and that thread is humility. That's what it says, continuing in Philippians chapter 2, Verses 3 to 4, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. If we want to be united, 
we must learn to be humble. At first glance, those words seem really simple, right? But in reality, they are very difficult to live out. Humility is a simple concept, but in actuality, it can be pretty tough to do. Because, let's be honest with ourselves, we are all selfish creatures. We are inherently looking out for our own well-being. We are inherently looking out for our own good. When push comes to shove, we are all looking out for numero uno. We want what's best for us. We revel in the glow of others' compliments. We like it when people look up to us. We want to be noticed. We want to be important. We want to be the ones that get the glory. But Paul says, get rid of all that. Don't do anything out of a self-centered motive. Don't go out hunting for glory from others. Don't live inwards looking for your own self. Rather, live outwards seeking only the good of others. There are a lot of ways that you can practically live out humility. Yes, humility is, is the attitude of the heart, but it manifests itself in a wide variety of ways. And, and Pastor Darren, two Sundays ago, had us come up with a bunch of examples of practical humility. Right? Stuff, we mentioned stuff like sacrifice, letting go of your ego, giving others credit, celebrating others' successes, Listening to others more than talking about yourself. Being quick to admit wrongdoing and, and apologizing. These were all practical examples of inward motivation. None of these actions will happen unless you truly and genuinely begin to think this way of the people that you meet. And begin to think this way of the Christian brother or sister that you disagree with. It's about a heart posture. It's about rewiring your brain to go against your natural tendency. It's not about putting on some kind of display or act. People can see right through that kind of false humility. Trust me, it's obvious when you think you're the most humble person around. I'm certain that many of you were taught this from young on, but it takes practice and it takes self-awareness. It's not just going to happen if you're not actively working toward inward humility. And when we as a body of believers, as a group, all put aside our egos, when we truly take on the form of a servant, like Savannah was talking about, and truly put others ahead of ourselves, overlooking weakness, truly forgiving past mistakes, giving others the opportunity and letting go of our own preferences, only then will we experience true, genuine unity in the body. Again, Paul continues by pointing to Jesus as the ultimate example of humility. Jesus' example shows what it truly means to have no selfish ambition or vain conceit at all. He gives us the example of what it looks like, put, it, put others first and completely deny yourself. Paul writes in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul calls us to have this kind of attitude, to live our lives with this in mind. 
I don't know. I, I don't think it's truly possible for us to humble ourselves as far as Christ did. Right? The contrast comes out so clearly in this text. He went from being in the form of God to being in the form of a servant. He goes from the highest possible position to the lowest, one of the lowest possible positions. He, has, he was equal with God in the glory of heaven and then denied himself to come to earth in the form of a slave. That's unmatchable humility already. But even that wasn't enough. Leaving the glory of heaven and then taking on a broken body in a sin-filled place, stooping to our level is one thing. But then Jesus humbles himself even more and he allows himself to be tortured. He allows himself to suffer and die. And not only that, he died the most humiliating death, stripped, beaten, nailed to a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' example of humility and self-denial is so far beyond us. Certainly beyond us as a church in North America. And Paul says, if we want to experience unity in our churches, we must be united with Christ in humility. Honestly, I think this call to humility is completely impossible on our own strength. It is only the work of the Holy Spirit in us and our obedience to the Holy Spirit in us that will make us able to truly become humble and in turn to be united. If we jump ahead to uh, verse 19 in, in, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives, a, gives an example of such a life in submission to Christ. Timothy lived such a life, listening to the Apostle Paul and, and what he has to say about him. It, it says in 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I don't think that Paul is saying that Timothy had humility down to a T. He's not saying that Timothy was perfect. But what he is saying is that Timothy was ready and willing to go and serve those in the church in Philippi, considering them as more important than his own comforts, and thereby promoting unity in their church by way of example. Timothy was submitted to Christ and striving towards humility. So what about you? How are you working towards unity? Are you striving towards humility and living out the example of Christ? I firmly believe that as we work together, as we unite in purpose to make much of the name of Jesus, to bring glory to him and show the world what he has done in us and through us, that we will see change in our churches and in the world around us. A couple of years ago, Pixar released an animated movie called Finding Nemo. And, and I think it's probably safe to assume that most of you have seen it. And, and if you haven't, or uh, if you've just simply forgotten, it's this cute story about a clownfish father who swims the entire ocean in search of his son, Nemo, who got snatched up by a dentist and put inside his aquarium. And, and towards the end, there's a scene 
where father and son are finally reunited, only to see their friend Dory suddenly get caught up in a massive net together with a load of other fish. And in the chaos, Nemo swims through the net and tells all the fish to swim down together. The fish, in unison, start swimming against the upward pull of the net. They swim down toward the ocean floor and miraculously it works. The crane arm breaks and the net falls to the ocean floor and the fish are set free. Their unified effort saves them from certain death. Of course, it's just an animated movie. Nonetheless, it still reminds me of the power of unity and humility. I, I, I started off this sermon with a real-life image of a group of fish fighting each other, going down to their demise. Perhaps uniting fish is really only possible in the movies. But my prayer is that uniting Christians and uniting churches as we humbly submit ourselves to Christ can truly become a reality. If we want to survive, we must work together and we must be united through, through humility. Amen.